Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. But we are in James chapter 1, the last two verses. And James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's about as in-your-face as any author in the Bible. And I think one of the things I like about James is that James doesn't really beat around the bush. He doesn't, like, hint around the topic. Like, he just says it like it is. And I think I like that, and I think some of us, we like that. We like just being told as it is. And, and James is not a very long book. In fact, it's only five chapters long. But even though it's a short book, James says a whole lot of things in just a short amount of time. And so in case you've missed the last couple of weeks, you can go online and you can check it out. But just as a quick way of review, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how we can know the word, we can study the word, we can memorize the word, we can download the word, we can podcast the word, we can even teach the word. But if we're not doing the word, our faith is worthless. He's saying, if you're going to have real faith, it's going to work. You're going to want to put it into motion. And not be like this one-pedaled bicycle that just kind of knows the word, knows the word, knows the word, you know? Because what happens? You just go around in a circle. You need this duality. You need this harmony. You need the stereo of know the word and do the word. Because if, you just, if, you, if, if you're not putting both into motion, you're just wasting your time. And so it's possible for us to know and not do. But what James is going to really tell us here at the close of chapter 1 is that it's also possible for us to do and our hearts be far from him. This week, I was, uh, as I was studying, praying, and, and researching all the things, I was like, okay, I'm going to intro this. Uh, and, and I was reminded of, and how I'm going to intro this is, I was reminded of a date, April 23rd, 1985. Some of you, you like history, and you're like, that date doesn't even ring a bell. Like, what's going on there? Some of you are like, I have a life, and you know, history and dates and things, like they mean nothing to me in one ear, out the other. Like I, I'm not all into that kind of stuff. But if you're a Coca-Cola drinker, you're a big Coca-Cola fan, how many of you are? You raise your hand. How many of you are a Pepsi fan? Oh, okay, well, we'll pray for you. Um, we, uh, <laughs> how many of you love Dr. Pepper? Because I'm beginning to learn that also is, yeah, okay. The first service was a little more spirited with the Dr. Pepper. So, um, but, uh, but if you're a Coca-Cola fan, this date is very important to you because uh, this was the first time in the 99-year history of this company that they came out with a statement and they said, we're changing the formula of Coke. They're like, we're not going to do it anymore. We're changing it. Uh, because if you're, if you're familiar with it, during the 80s, there was what was known as the soda war between Pepsi and between Coke. And who was better? And Pepsi was winning. And so Coke was like, all right, we're going to do something about this. We're going to do something. We're going to change the formula to rejuvenate, to revive, to refresh our company. And people are going to love this thing called New Coke. The reality is it did the very opposite of all of that. After that day, after it was announced that day, there was a firestorm in America. People were not happy about the fact that they were changing the formula of Coca-Cola. Uh, you know, there were people, if you were alive during this time, you probably even remember what was happening. Uh, people would go and, and riot in the streets, like, you know, protesting, like, give us back the formula. It was the lead-in to nightly news. It was on uh, headlines in newspapers and magazines. Like It, it was uh, people, thousands of people every day were calling Coca-Cola and saying, hey, give us the old taste. Give us the old taste. Give us the old taste. We don't want this new stuff anymore. Give us the old formula of Coca-Cola. And after 79 days, 
Coke comes out and they're like, hey, we've heard you loud and clear and we're going to bring back the old formula to which everybody who enjoyed Coca-Cola said, amen. I'm also beginning to learn that I think Coca-Cola is the Lord's beverage because it's also paired with the Lord's chicken at Chick-fil-A. So you guys figure out your beverages, you know. But here's the point in all of this. The, here, here's the sad reality that although we will not stand for anything less than the real thing when it comes to our beverages, we are more than content to settle for the less than real thing when it comes to our worship. The reality is that some of us here today, we're just going through the motions of our worship, of our religion, of our Christianity, but our hearts are far away from the real thing. In fact, the title of today's message is How to Have the Real Thing. In James chapter 1, he closes out by addressing what the real thing looks like. He says this in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, James begins to address what he calls pure and undefiled religion. In fact, if you notice, in just those two verses, he uses the word religion three different times. And so what I want to do before we start diving in and pulling out the principles and seeing what James is trying to teach us today, what I want to do is define a couple of words for us real quick. Because it's important that we understand the context that James is writing this. Because religion is a word that we're very familiar with in our culture, right? Like when we hear the word religion, a lot of us, we have our own thoughts, our own mind, our own concept of what that means. I mean, oftentimes if I'm hanging out with some people and they're cussing and they're saying things they shouldn't say and they then find out that I'm a pastor, sometimes they go, oh, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to say those things. Like I'm not that religious. You know, my grandparents were religious, my parents were religious, but I'm not that religious. Typically when we hear the word religion, we think of someone who's a good person. We think of someone who goes to church. See, religion, in a negative sense, is external conformity. It's empty. It's what Jesus had the harshest and hardest words for. The religious leaders in their empty, man-centered, tradition-oriented, external behavior. But here's what religion means in the context of what James is saying. When James says religion, he's saying, me, this is what I'm doing. I'm responding to what God has done for me. That's religion. So when we see the word religion come up in these two verses, you have to think of terms, you have to think in terms of religion is my response to what God has done for me. So when we see that, that kind of qualifies what he's getting at. Now, we have another word that means that phrase, right? And that word is worship. Worship is all of me responding to all that God has said, all that God has promised, and all that God has done. That's worship. That's what James is saying when he uses the word religion. So if we want to know if we have the real thing, not the cheap imitation version of Coca-Cola, we want to have the real thing, real worship, we need to make sure God's grace is spilling out of our lives. And if God's grace is not spilling out of our lives as a changed life, James says that our worship, our religion is worthless. And just to get a little bit deeper on it, the word worthless means a void of significance. It's empty. Meaning this, you could go through all the motions of church, but if God's grace that's in your life is not coming out of you as a changed life, then you don't have the real thing. It's not real worship. 
See, we could come and we can sit down in some of the nicest churches. We can hear uh, pastors preach sermons. We can sing some really great Christian worship songs. But if it's not authentic, genuine worship that's spilling out of our lives, it's not the real thing. I'll say it this way. If the God I worship is not the God who's changing my life, then, then the God I worship is not the God of the Bible, but a convenient God of my own making who's a security blanket for coping with life. And what James is saying is that that worship, that religion is worthless. It's not the real thing. Now, here's why all this is important. This is why I'm explaining this and breaking apart those words for you. Because when we look at verses 26 and 27, when you look at it, it, what he's getting at is if your life has changed, if the grace of God has come inside of you, you receive Jesus, then it's going to change the way that you speak. That's verse 26 summed up. It's going to change the way that you live. Verse 27, it's going to change the way and change who you serve. That's also verse 27. In fact, those are the three areas that we're going to be taking a closer look at today. And so James is going to get a little bit in our business today. He's going to step on our toes. We're going to get a little uncomfortable. But here's what he's going to show us. That religion or worship, what it should look like in our lives. So here's the first one. If what I have is the real thing, not the fake, cheap imitation version, but if I'm a true worshiper of Jesus, then it'll change the things that I say. Verse 26, it says, if anyone thinks that he is religious, or we could say a worshiper, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion or worship is worthless. Again, we could come to church and we can sing the loudest. We can have our hands raised higher than anybody else. We could join 22 different small groups Uh, We could serve on all the ministry teams and make sure everything's covered down. We could give more than 10%. Here's what James says. If it doesn't change the way you speak to other people, then it's not the real thing. Uh, The word that James uses to describe all this is he says the word tongue, and he's using that metaphorically. It's not literally that little piece of flesh in between your teeth. He's talking about what we use our tongues to do. He's referring to speech, to language, to human communication. James is like, if you want to know, if you have the real thing, you need to ask yourself a question. Is my worship changing the way that I communicate to other people? Can other people see the way that I communicate with them and that God is changing my life? And that my life is a pathway, is a conduit of God's grace. We all know that words are powerful. What do words do? Well, we know what they do theologically, right? Genesis 1 tells us that God spoke and things came into existence. So words can create things. God's word um, can also convict us. It can change us. It can comfort us. So we know what God's words do theologically. God's word does a lot for us theologically, but we also know what words do personally, right? Because we've all had a personal experience. Remember growing up, what did your parents tell you? Sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt me, right? Liars. (laughs) They lie to you. Like they hurt. Words hurt us. The reality is some of us, we're still thinking about what our spouse said to us five days ago, five months ago, five years ago, let alone maybe five minutes ago. Some of us, we're still wrestling through what our parents said to us when we were kids. And we're trying to heal. We're trying to get better. But we're still holding on to the words that were said to us as kids. The idea here is that words create worlds. And so if you, want your, if you want the world of your home to change, then you need to change the words in your home. Amen. The most practical first step that many of us could do is change the way that we speak to our spouse. 
Change the way we speak to our kids. Change the way that we speak to our parents. Our speech needs to change. If you want a better workplace, you want a better office space, well, then you need to change the way that you speak to your coworkers and what you say in the office. It all needs to change. Now, James talks a lot about words. In almost every single chapter, James is mentioning or talking about words. In fact, chapter three is dedicated almost all to the tongue and words and what we say in communication. And you might be thinking, well, why does James talk so much about this? Like, why is this so important to him? Because communication with words is a major part of our lives as human beings. In fact, there have been studies that have been done to show that on average, we speak about 16,000 words a day. Now, some of you walked in here with somebody who's a little above average, and you're sitting next to someone who's a little below average right now, and you wish they'd come up above average a little bit, but on average, we speak about 16,000 words a day. That means that we can fill up the average book in about three days. Now, you take that out over the course of the year, We could fill 120 books. The reality is we will spend 20% of our lives communicating with people. And James is saying the primary way that we express worship is the way that we communicate with other people. If If my heart has truly been changed by God's grace, then God's grace will be demonstrated in how I communicate with people in my life. And this isn't new information that James is giving us. Jesus said things similar to this. This week I was thinking, man, as James, is, as he's riding the 12 tribes all dispersed and all that, I, I was like, man, I'd like to think that as he was writing this, he was like, oh yeah, I remember what my big brother Jesus taught about words in Matthew chapter 15 in a sermon. Because Jesus said, the things that proceed out of your mouth come from the heart. See, the way that you communicate with your family on the way home from church today says more about how you worship today than how loud you sing, how long you prayed, how many sermon notes you took. Now, everybody's going to be real good on the way home, right? <laughs> where do you want to go for lunch, sweetie? I don't know, wherever you want, dear. Like, kids, stop arguing in the back, right? But listen, we can't come in here. We can't be like, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Pray so long. Take so many notes and say, look at what I learned. If we go home and we verbally beat people around us, James says, your worship is worthless if you're doing that. The reality is we've settled for a cheap substitute, a counterfeit. We think new Coke is wonderful. That's what we've done. See, if the way that you communicate doesn't change the fact and show how you worship today, then something's off in our worship. And James gives us this powerful picture of what bridling the tongue looks like. Now, I grew up in the city, so I didn't grow up around horses. Uh, in fact, even as a kid, when I had experiences with horses, I would often cry, and uh, they terrified me and all of that. But uh, a bridle is really made of two pieces. This is what I've learned this week, is that a bridle is really made of two pieces. It's the, the bit, and it's the reins. And so the bit goes in the horse's mouth, and the reins go in the hand of the driver, now, or the rider. See, I said driver. That's how city I am, okay? (laughs) And so uh, the thing with the reins is you don't want the reins too loose. The reins are too loose. Guess what? The horse will want to go where it wants to go and do its own thing, could lead you astray, could knock the rider off. You want to keep those those reins somewhat tight against the horse because when you do that, then you guide the horse where it needs to go. 
There's also this like this this symmetry between the rider and the horse. Like, like when you're in tune to the rider, you're going where the rider wants you to go. And, and so here's what James is saying, that we need to bridle our tongues, which means this. We need to put the bit in our mouth, which is the word of God. And we need to put the reins in the hands of the Holy Spirit so that the way we communicate is under the control of the Holy Spirit. And you might be thinking, well, what the heck does having, making sure our speech is under the control of the Holy Spirit? What does that even mean? What does that look like? Well, Ephesians 4.29 tells us, do not use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Now, you might be thinking, that's not possible. And you're right, it's not possible in your own strength and my own strength. But when we put the bit in our mouth, which is the word of God, and the reins in the hands of the Holy Spirit, our lives can be a conduit, a pathway of God's grace. Now, will we get it right every single time? Absolutely not. We will mess it up. We will get it wrong. But even when we get it wrong, you know what a heart of worship does? It leads to repentance. We go to people that we've communicated wrongly with, and we make it right. And when we humble ourselves, you know what happens? We will experience God's grace. See, in a day and age of text messaging, emailing, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, blogging, all this stuff, all that is is just digital communication. It's just digital communication. We need to be careful how we communicate. We've created a whole society that says, well, if something's going on in your mind or you feel some certain way, well, you just need to get it right out there and let everybody know how you feel. But as followers of Jesus, we don't buy that line of thinking. We need to keep a tight rein on our tongue. And speak in a way that shows that our faith is real. And at the core of our heart, it belongs to God. See, the most practical way that some of us can bridle our tongues is if we bridle our thumbs. And so James is teaching us that if you have the real thing, our worship, our religion will change the way that we speak to one another. Here's the second one. If you have the real thing, if you're a true worshiper, then it changes the life I live changes the way we live. We'll read the first half of verse 27 here in a minute, but I want to draw your attention to the last half of verse 27. It says, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, when James is saying to keep oneself, this is a continuous action to keep yourself clean. Every religion of the world says, hey, make yourself clean. You got to work, you got to do, you got to get this, you might even need to pay something, you got to work to make yourself clean. Christianity says, hey, keep yourself clean. See, God has made us clean through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's because of Jesus we are made clean. And we can all say a good amen right there, right? In fact, in two weeks, we're going to be celebrating the fact that Jesus came, died, and rose again. And because of that, we were made clean when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. There's no motion, there's no ceremony, there's no ritual that you can go through or you can perform that's ever going to give you a right standing before God. The grace of God is experienced when we realize that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And the only thing that we can do is throw ourselves on the mercy and on the grace of God who's made a way through Jesus. But from time to time, I'll meet people. And they're like, man, I feel really guilty over this or I did this one thing and I know I shouldn't have done this one thing and they have a lot of guilt over it and they feel bad about it. You know, maybe something they did in high school, something they did in college, 
something they did on vacation, you know, something they did when they were single, whatever it is. There's this guilt and there's this shame with it. And they devote their whole life to not doing that one thing again. In fact, they think, well, if I just do enough good, it will outweigh the bad. Because they're trying to clean themselves up. They haven't accepted Jesus who will do the cleaning. And I tell them all the time, you can't clean yourself up. There's nothing you can do to clean yourself up. We receive the cleansing from Jesus and we keep ourselves clean through confession of sin, through repentance. And so what James is trying to remind us here as followers of Jesus is we are to be set apart. We are to look different than the world because of what Jesus has done in our lives. Our lives should look different. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus cleanses us from the sins that we've done. And then we live our whole lives for the glory of God. And that involves confessing sin when it happens. And we try to live righteous lives through the work of the Holy Spirit that's within us. See, but the temptation for many of us is to not confess, not come clean, but to try to cover it up. And this goes all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? Like, isn't that what they did? They sinned. God comes looking for them. They hide behind a bush. They make some fig leaves together. They're trying to cover up. They're trying to hide themselves. And we do the exact same thing. We sin. We try to delete the internet browser history. We try to sleep it off. We try to do whatever it is. We try to cover it up instead of coming clean and confessing it. Think about it like this. If you've got a stain on your favorite shirt, what are you going to do? You're going to walk around like this all the time? It's not there. I'm going to pretend it's not there. Are we going to kind of keep covering it up? Like, hey, you don't see it. It's not there. Just, you know, you just kind of do your thing. No. You want to get it out as quickly as you can. The worst thing you can do when it comes to a stain is act like it's not there and you keep covering it up. What James is teaching us here is that real worship, real religion, what we've experienced, when we've experienced that grace of God through salvation, it'll change our lives. We'll look different from the world. And one of the ways that we stay unstained from the world is through confessing our sin. See, if what you're calling worship isn't spilling out of us through a changed life, then what we're calling worship, our religion is worthless and we're deceiving ourselves. Now, again, I'm not talking about perfection here. We're all going to sin. We're going to make mistakes, but that doesn't mean we go, oh, well, God will forgive. His grace is an ocean and all, you know, we don't, we don't do that because the Bible tells us that that's making fun of what Jesus has done. It's making a mockery of the cross. We don't just sin because we're like, oh, it'll be forgiven. No, we take it seriously. We confess, we repent, we turn from those things. But when we do sin, what James is trying to teach us is a pattern that should be in our lives. So whatever you're dealing with today, if you're not a believer, you're just here and you're just checking this out, the first step you need to make today is get right with Jesus by admitting you need a Savior, that there is nothing you can do on your own that'll ever get you to heaven. So you need to admit that you need a Savior and you need to receive the forgiveness from Jesus. Once you've repented and turned from those sins, then it's an ongoing process of confession and coming clean with those sins. So if we have the real thing, it's going to change our words. It's going to change the way that we live. But finally, it's going to change who we serve. Look at verse 27. It says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their, in their affliction. The word affliction comes from the verb that means to crush or to squeeze. Now imagine if I gave you an egg and I put it in your hand and I said, all right, take that egg and crush it and squeeze it. And all of a sudden, all the egg stuff starts coming out all over you. That's the verb that this word affliction comes from. 
It speaks of pain, pressure, being squeezed. Have you ever been in a situation in your life where you have felt that way? You live long enough and you will, right? I think it, it can look, in, in, in to us financially, it can look uh, with health, it can look relationally like us. Like we can feel some version of pressure and being squeezed and being like, I don't know what to do. And here's what James is saying. Our worship, our religion is seen in how we care for those in need, how we care for those who are feeling squeezed by life. Now, James mentions two groups here. And I don't think this is an exhaustive list. It's like, well, that's the list, that's it. I think what he's doing is he's pointing to a starting point. He's trying to show us this is what you should be looking for. These are the people you should be looking for. And the reason why he selected these two groups is because in the first century, when James is writing this, these were some of the most neglected people in this time. To be an orphan or a widow in the first century was to be one of the neediest people in society. The Roman Empire, they didn't have government programs like we do today. They didn't have health insurance like we do today. Nothing existed for these orphans or widows. They were totally abandoned and left crushed by life. And James is teaching us, and what he's telling us here is that our involvement in their distress means more than just making a donation. It means more than just let me write a check and let me take care of these people. It means that we are to visit the orphans and widows of the world. But what does it mean to visit? Does it mean to just quickly swing by and and stop by and say, hey, how's it going? And then we leave. No, to visit, it's a word that means to check on the condition of, to care for the needs of. It means that we're going to personally get involved in the lives of the vulnerable in our community with the purpose of understanding their needs and seeking to meet those needs. The word visit is the same word that God would use to describe himself when he would go and he would visit with his people in their affliction. This is the idea of I'm going to them. I've been far away from you, but it's about time that I get personally involved in your life. See, uh, if you have the real thing, one of the things that is going to show that the grace of God is being displayed in your life is you're going to get involved with serving the least and the last in society. See, if we are to be conduits of God's grace in this city, the way this city will know and experience the grace of God through our lives is how we serve people in our community, in our city. Over a year ago, the pastors and I, we we went away and we were praying, Lord, who is it that we're supposed to reach out to? Who is it that we're supposed to serve? And the Lord really gave us three channels, three pathways. And uh, Pastor AJ, he'll be out at the white cart later if you want to find out more information about this. Or if you hear something that interests you, email us at info at awaken.church. And we'd love to get you more connected and, and put you on the right path to getting involved with all these, putting these verses into action. But we went away and we prayed about it. And we really just saw that the Lord revealed to us three ways that we are to serve our community. And the first one is through Kids Bible Club. And this is something where uh, we go to the Lincoln Homes area, just not too far from here. And in the summertime, we go to them and, and we tell them about Jesus. We cook some food. We play some games. We do things like that. But in the wintertime, it gets a little cold. <laughs> and so what we do, we didn't look for a bus. We weren't looking to purchase a bus. Guess what? A bus was just given to us. That was because the Lord was showing us this is one way that you serve those in your community. 
And so we were like, all right, this is what we're going to do. So uh, really what we're looking for with Kids Bible Club is we're looking for somebody who can drive a bus. If you're like, well, what's the bus? Like, how big is it? Well, it's a very small looking bus, but um, you can look at it. It should be parked out in the parking lot in the back there. You can look at it if you're like, "I'm, I'm curious how to drive one. But we're also looking for people who can just cook, who can make meals for these kids on a Thursday night. They meet Thursday nights over in the social side. Uh, We're looking for people who can just display, who can share the love of Jesus to these kids. That's just one way. Another way that we feel like we're called to serve our city is through um, Bible study. And now some of us, we hear that and we go, well, I can't teach the Bible. Next, you know, like, but it's not that complicated. It's actually not that hard at all. Really what we're looking for, we're already starting it in some places, but there's opportunities even in the nursing homes to help and bring the good news of Jesus to them, to talk about the Bible to them. And it's not necessarily like we got to have a three-point sermon and we're ready to go. What it means is that we go and we pray for them. We encourage them. We talk about what the Lord is showing us. They might have questions and guess what? You might not know the answers, but the good news is you can say, I'll come back tomorrow and I'll get that answer. I'll come back next week. I'll get that answer. You're you're establishing a relationship with them where you're bringing the good news of Jesus to them. You're praying over them. Now, if it happens to lead to a Bible study and you're like, I feel like I could teach and do all that, we'll train you, we'll equip you, we'll show you. We're we're not going to just send you out there and be like, good luck, you know. We'll train you and all of that. But really, a Bible study just starts with, hey, I want to pray. I want to meet with these people. I want to talk with them about what God is doing in my life. The last pathway is uh, DCS. A lot of you know that this is something we've been working on and getting involved with. And and so with DCS, some of the needs are food. Obviously, uh, you know, we're trying to supply food for these kids. We recently just even bought them a deep freezer over there so they could store more food, but they need food. And if you know, food costs, are, food costs are on the rise. And so we're trying our best to keep up with a lot of that. But to be honest, sometimes it's a lot. It's a little too much. And so really the most tangible way a lot of us could serve those is by bringing food. We need people who are very skilled with their hands. There's sometimes they get to the safe house. Things are just broken. Things are in disrepair because they're angry. They're mad. Let's get it. They, they've just been ripped from their families. They don't understand everything. And so we need people to come in who can repair things, who can fix things. And another tangible way is we need people who will sit with these kids as they're in between their home and their foster home. We need people who uh, will buy some board games, will buy some toys, and not just your leftover stuff that you're like, my kids don't play with this. No, buy them something new. They have nothing. And we have the opportunity to give them something in this terrible and tough time in their lives. Even more so, we get the opportunity to serve those who are serving these kids in DCS. We can bless the workers and the people who are trying to serve these kids. These are who we believe the Lord has put in front of us to serve them. And as we serve and engage with those people in our society, as we meet their needs and walk with them, they will experience the grace of God through our lives. God is a father. And here's what I believe he wants us to see. He wants us to see people in our city with the eyes of the father. And isn't that right? I mean, anytime you become a dad or a mom, you see things completely differently, right? You see finances different. You see marriage different. Like you kind of go, an arranged marriage doesn't really sound that bad, you know? (laughs) At least I'm saying that, I don't know. (laughs) 
You look at risks differently. You look at your home differently. You look at money differently. You look at your health differently. Like, hey, I might want to stick around a little longer. You look at all of life differently when you're a mom or a dad. And God the Father says, I want you to see the needy people how I see needy people. And here's what's really interesting, because God associates himself with people in need. I mean, you can look all throughout the Bible, and God associates himself with four groups of people. He associates them with the poor, the widow, the fatherless, and the immigrant. Now, who wants to be their God? No man-made religion wants to be their God. But God's like, hey, if I'm going to connect myself with a certain group of people, then I'm going to connect myself to those who are the least and the last and the leftovers of society. Worship isn't measured by how loud you sang today. It's not measured by how well you thought the sermon went, how nice you thought the church was, and all of that, if it doesn't result in an action on Monday. Because vertical worship, our worship to God, must be expressed through horizontal worship. The grace of God being displayed in our lives to the people around us, to the people in this room, and to the people outside these walls. See, really what, what it all comes down to when you read this, it comes down to has the gospel changed you? If you like writing in your Bible and you're okay with that, you could take those two verses and just circle them and put has the gospel changed me right off to the side. Because that, I believe, is really what this is getting at. If you hate the cheap imitation version, the new Coke version, if you're like, how do I have the real thing? Well, guess what? It'll change how you speak. It'll change the way you live. And it changes who you serve. Why do we go to these kids? Why are we looking to serve these people? Because they can't always come to us. And so we go to them because God came after us. This week, as I was looking at those two words, orphans and widows, I thought, man, isn't that who we all are spiritually? Aren't we all spiritual widows and orphans? Why did God come to us? Because we couldn't get to him. Here's what that means. We were without hope. I mean, the Bible uses the language as Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. Why does he say that? Because we were widowed. But once we received Jesus, we are now unified with him. Why does the Bible talk about us being orphans in the Bible? Why does he use that language? Because here's what's amazing. When God forgives you, saves you, changes you, he not only forgives, saves, and changes you, but he adopts you into his family. And it's because of what God has done for us. It should change everything about us. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.